This is the 320th anniversary of the birth of Jonathan Edwards. He was that well-known congregational minister in the North American colonies in New England. He was born into a Puritan home on the 5th of October 1703 in a place called East Windsor in Connecticut to Timothy and Esther Edwards. He was the fifth of 11 children. He had 10 sisters and they were all supposed to be over six foot tall. So it was a bit of a remarkable family indeed. But Jonathan Edwards is most well known for seeing two seasons of revival during his ministry in the neighboring state of Massachusetts in a place called Northampton. It was during the second of those revival sermons, or revival seasons, that he preached a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that phrase that I have pointed out to you here from verse 35 was his text on that occasion, their foot shall slide in due time. And the title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the Lord mightily blessed that sermon. We're going to say a little bit about it just in a moment. But Jonathan Edwards had the distinction of being both the son of a minister and the grandson of a minister. He, along with his ten sisters, as we have uh, already mentioned, were all brought up under the influence of the gospel. His father, Timothy Edwards, served as the pastor in the second church in Windsor, Connecticut, where he was born and brought up. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, served for a long time as the pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, the church to which Edwards was eventually going to be called as the minister. Now, Jonathan Edwards was blessed with a supreme intellect. He entered Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut, when he was just 13 years of age. Upon leaving it in 1722, he went to New York uh, City for eight months. He was there as unordained pulpit supply in a small Presbyterian church in William Street in that great city. When he had finished those eight months, they wanted him to stay on as their minister and pleaded with him to do so, but he declined the call. He returned back home to uh, Connecticut and to Windsor, and studied at home for a few months, and then he returned to Yale College, this time as a tutor. But not only as a tutor, for two years, 1724 to 1726, he was one of two tutors that had been asked to lead the college in the absence of a rector. So he had a most senior position in Yale College, Yale University, as it is known today. On the 15th of February, 1727, he was ordained to the gospel ministry as minister of Northampton Congregational Church and as the assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. He was a scholar pastor, not a visiting pastor. There was a difference in uh, the congregation at that time. By his rule was that he would spend around 13 hours of the day in his study. 13 hours of the day in his study. The same year he married a lady called uh, Sarah Pierpont. Her father James was one of the 10 uh, congregational ministers who had founded Yale College. 
today known as Yale University. It's interesting to remember those prestigious universities in North America. Yale and Harvard and Princeton were all commenced by congregational ministers and all started out as training places for ministers. And then, as years went by, they broadened out and brought in um, humanities and some other subjects and developed into what it is today. They're very prestigious universities. Ivy Ivy League universities is what they are called, Uh, Yale and Harvard and Princeton. Yet all three of those places of learning commenced, were commenced by congregational ministers in New England for the training of ministry, of men for the ministry. And Jonathan Edwards' father-in-law was one of the ten who started Yale. In fact, that man, James uh, uh, Pierpont, uh, was the, the leading man among, them, of, among the ten. But we want to, come to consider some things about this man's life uh, tonight that I trust would encourage us, challenge us, make us to rejoice in what the Lord has done, and also give us a longing for the Lord to do something similar even in our own times. The first thing I want you to consider here is Jonathan Edward and his struggle for peace of conscience. His struggle for peace of conscience. As we have mentioned, he was greatly privileged growing up under the influence of the gospel. As I say, he, his father was a minister, his grandfather was a minister. But in the earliest surviving letter written by him at the age of 12, uh, the age of 12, he describes some of the recent events in his father's church. And I quote, Through the wonderful mercy and goodness of God, there hath in this place been a very remarkable stirring and pouring out of the Spirit of God. Now this doesn't include the two times that he saw uh, revival in his own ministry that we'll come on to think about in a moment. This is his father's Uh, congregation in East Windsor in Connecticut. He's only 12 years of age, and here he is. I think he was writing to his sister, if my memory serves me right, at this particular time. But this is what he was telling, that through the wonderful mercy and goodness of God, there hath in this place been a very remarkable stirring and pouring out of the Spirit of God. That really framed his, his life in many ways, the remarkable outpouring of the Spirit of God. However, although brought up in the gospel and under the influence of it, being a child of the manse, he struggled with some of the doctrines of the gospel in his childhood and in his early youth. And again, I quote him, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Like any child, young person brought up in a a believing home, he's still a sinner. He needs conversion. There's still an unbelieving heart in any individual, no matter what their privileges might be in their upbringing. They can be taught the things of God from the day they are born, but there's still an unbelieving heart in every individual. And Jonathan Edwards was no different for all his background and privileges He's got an unbelieving heart, and he acknowledged it, and he struggled with some of these things. However, it wasn't until he was 18 years of age, in 1721, in his last years at Yale, when the Lord began to work in his life in a saving way. He described it as a delightful conviction that came upon him. 
The scripture that was used by the Lord to bring him to saving faith was 1 Timothy 1.17. And it revolved around this very doctrine that he struggled to accept. Because if you know that verse of scripture, 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We might back up a little bit and think, well, what about verse 15? Where it tells us about the one, the Savior who died. But no, it was verse 17 of that chapter. This verse that speaks about the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was as if it were diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself and went to prayer to pray to God that I might enjoy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. From that point onwards in his life, Jonathan Edwards delighted in the the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but he still had spiritual struggles. And sometimes that often happens, you know, with young people brought up in the gospel. It's different in some ways to somebody who has been out in the world and saved uh, from a very sinful background The change is very obvious, very dramatic oftentimes when somebody is converted maybe in later life and they haven't had the privilege of being brought up in the things of God. So somebody that has and and maybe there's no discernible change or not very, very much a discernible change because of their manner of upbringing. And Jonathan Edwards was like that. He, He struggled. He struggled for peace and assurance. He kept a diary. That's how we know what his thoughts were. It's a personal narrative during his years in Yale College. He he regularly documents how his joy ebbed and flowed between spiritual bliss that he had come to know the Lord and despair over his sins. And that was on a regular basis. It wasn't just one off now and again. This was something that was repeated in his his writings, he was particularly troubled that his conversion experience did not seem to fit the pattern that normally would have been associated with a soul led to conversion as was generally held by the Puritans of New England. And the devil used that because it was such a, an unusual means of conversion that through this uh, thinking and dwelling upon the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that he would be brought to know Jesus Christ He was troubled. The devil used it to rob him of peace. And it was not until he left seal that in his diary entries he appears to have come to a far more settled state of heart and a joy in in the Lord. In his early years as a child of God, Jonathan Edwards was known for his resolutions. There's around 70 of them if you read various 
documents that he um, wrote out various dates in his life. Sometimes he dated them, so we know exactly when it was in his life that he was writing out of these. But I can't read to you all 70 resolutions. I certainly would encourage you to go and look them up uh, and read some of them. But I'm going to read a couple to you because I think they're very significant. Here's what he says at the beginning of a document, not the first resolution, but here's what he does explaining this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And he pledged that he would regularly read over these resolutions. At least once a week, he would read over these resolutions, reminding what he pledged that he would do, seeking the Lord's help, acknowledging that he needed the Lord, and that this would be a means of keeping this before him. It's no bad thing to be reminded that we need the Lord's help. We need his strength. We certainly need his saving power. Initially in our lives, we cannot save ourselves, but even saved, we need the Lord's help every day. And this was Jonathan Edwards' way of keeping this truth before him. But here are some of the resolutions that he, he made. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve so to do whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. Resolved, I will live for God. Resolved, if no one else does, I still will. That's a a worthwhile one to stop and ponder for a moment, or those last two. Resolved, I will live for God. Resolved, if no one else does, I still will. That was his determination. He was going to live for God, and he was a man who did live for God. Lived a very disciplined life, a life of study and, and devotion to the Lord. Is it any wonder that the Lord used him in such a mighty fashion? May we resolve to live for God and to live for God no matter what. And to even have that attitude, if no one else does, I still will. There was much lukewarmness in the North American colonies among uh, those who professed to be the Lord's. Remember, a lot of those people went to America for the liberty and freedom to worship as they believed they should. And there was a, a, a sense of of the things of God amongst them and an and a outward adherence to these things. And that was the greatest problem that Edwards, and we'll, we'll come to mention this in a moment, but that was one of the greatest problems that Edwards faced uh, in his preaching was just apathy. People professed to follow the Lord, but there wasn't a zeal for God as there ought to be. There wasn't open sin. There were some examples of it uh, here and there, but not, not as we understand uh, open sin today and defiance of God. It was very respectable and God-fearing communities that they were living in, but apathy reigned. But God so worked in Jonathan Edwards' life that he resolved that he was going to live for God. And the Lord brought him to that place of peace and assurance 
and he resolved in the fashion that, that he did. And may we resolve to follow the Lord. The second thing I want you to consider is his experience of these two seasons of revival. As I'd mentioned, he went to be the minister in his grandfather's church as his assistant. That was the second largest church in the New England colonies, the church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Two years after coming to that church, his grandfather died, and Jonathan Edwards became the senior pastor of that congregation, even though he was a very young man at at that time. He was an accomplished preacher. Contrary to some reports, he did not read his sermons close up to his face. As you'll come to see, he could preach without notes. He was an accomplished preacher. He was a very accomplished academic, a man of learning and study, a man who'd written many articles, even when he was in Yale University, on other subjects outside of the things of God and theological issues. There were many other areas of learning that he was interested in, and he was more than capable in writing and discussing them. He was an accomplished preacher. In 1731, remember he was born in 1703, So in 1731, he was called upon to deliver the Thursday lecture corresponding with the commencement at Harvard College. Again, Harvard College is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. As I've mentioned already, it started out as a training school for congregational ministers in that part of the world, in that state of Massachusetts. Every New England minister, and certainly the congregational ministers, would attend that gathering. It was said that Edwards preached to a packed house of ministers, many whom had pastored for more years in New England than Edwards had been alive. And yet such was his renown as a young man and accomplished preacher that he was asked to deliver that sermon. He preached upon the subject God glorified in the work of redemption. Now remember what he struggled with, the sovereignty of God. But he came to embrace and to delight in that doctrine, and he preached that doctrine often. And on that occasion, when he was asked to go and preach at that commencement meeting for Harvard College, that's what his sermon was, God glorified in the work of redemption. It was the first sermon that has ever been published that Jonathan Edwards preached. And here's what he said, God is glorified in the work of redemption in this that there appears in it so absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. He concluded that sermon by saying, Let us exalt God alone and ascribe to him all the glory of redemption. He had come fully to embrace that truth. Salvation is of the Lord. That he is the author and the finisher of our faith. It is he who begins that work and plans, planned it in eternity past. It is he who brings it to the heart of an individual. It is he who keeps that individual and brings them home to glory. That was Jonathan Edwards' sermon that day and the first one that has ever been published under his name. He preached the doctrines of grace in his own congregation in Northampton for three years from 1731 In 1734, he preached a sermon entitled, A Divine and Supernatural Light. 
saying that when dead souls rise to new life, when blind blind eyes see the beauty of the gospel, and when deaf ears hear the transforming truth of the redemptive work of Christ, all of this is because of the divine and supernatural light. From those few examples I've already given you, you can see the theme that was often to the fore of his ministry. God's sovereign in all things. Yet that was a doctrine he struggled with as a young lad growing up, but come to embrace it. But at that time, preaching through that series of of meetings or subject titles in his own congregation in Northampton, there started to be a moving of God in his congregation. It was called the First Great Awakening. In 1734, Edwards began preaching to his congregation about personal religious experience, about the conviction of sins and the need for God's forgiveness. So it was personally applied, those great truths that he delighted in and had come to receive and embrace, and he was applying them to the people in his congregation, and as he did, God began to use his word in that congregation. There probably hadn't been as much personal application of the preaching of the word as there was in those days of Jonathan Edwards. And the people responded. People resolved to follow the Lord more fully, to have a greater love and devotion to Jesus Christ. 1734. And over the next two years or so, Up until 1736, there was a revival that came to the towns and churches dotted along the Connecticut River Valley. Edwards reported this. He he wrote extensively. There is a book that is entitled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God and the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton and in the neighboring town, 1737. That book, you can still read it. It's online today. You can read there of what took place during that time of awakening. How after three years it subsided. Just three years of moving and stirring. But it says that it left the people spiritually hungry for more. They had tasted a little, just a little of what God could do. And such was the blessing it came with to that congregation that it stirred them to seek the Lord for more, to come again and to work again among them. And God heard that prayer. And that's why Jonathan Edwards is known as the man who saw revival twice in his congregation in Northampton because a second season of revival came. Shortly after it, What had taken place up and down that river valley of Connecticut, it was only really a prelude for what was going to take place. 1740 to 1742, another three-year period. And it says there that God brought about another season of the outpouring of his spirit and the awakening of souls. George Whitfield was the man God used. Whitfield uh, traveled back and forth across the Atlantic. I think it was ten times he traveled back and forth. Preaching in England, he preached here in Ireland as well. He preached in the New England colonies. Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield became firm friends. And he preached in New England. And God was pleased to use Whitfield preaching to bring about another awakening. It said that there was 
Crowds that numbered in the tens of thousands had gathered to hear Whitfield preach out of doors. Many questioned what was happening. Some didn't like what was taking place in the meetings and the physical effects it was having upon individuals. But Jonathan Edwards defended what was done. In 1741, he, he wrote another book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. In fact, it really is the standard by which you would rem- you'd measure revival. If you want to know, is something real? Is it genuine? There was a, a little while ago there in America, there was a, what claimed to be a revival starting, and people were wondering, oh, is this real? Is this genuine? Well, certainly measure it up against the Word of God, but Jonathan Edwards wrote that book then, 1741, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, and it really is the standard by which you would measure up anything that claims to be a work of God. So thorough was the work that he did, and so thorough was the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of individuals in, in that congregation and around that area. It would be nice to see just a little moving once in your life of the Spirit of God. But to see it twice, even to be brought up in that, if you remember what I said there about that first letter he had ever written at the age of 12 and said that in his father's church there was a moving of the Spirit of God. This man, to some degree, lived in that atmosphere of the moving of God. And oh, that such a thing would happen in our time too. That we would have a hunger for that. And may the Lord give us such a hunger. I want to finish off thinking about his sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards had preached that sermon. Ministers do preach the same sermons in odd time, you know, when they go somewhere else. So Edwards did the same. And he had preached this sermon in his own church in Northampton. And it had met with little reaction. It was the second preaching of that sermon that lived on in church history as being so memorable. It was the 8th of July, 1741. Edwards was at Enfield, Connecticut for a midweek service, but he wasn't the preacher, or at least he wasn't the announced preacher. The intended preacher that night took ill and wasn't able to come and preach at the meeting, and Edwards was exhorted to fill in. Remember, he was renowned as a very capable preacher. And because there was no preacher, the preacher didn't turn up because he had taken ill, they persuaded Edwards to get up into the pulpit and to start to preach. So he hadn't come prepared to preach at that meeting. He had come just to attend that meeting. But he got up into the pulpit and he began to preach. And the, pre- the sermon that the Lord laid on his heart to preach that night was this text and this sermon. He had preached it before in his own congregation. Their foot shall slide in due times. Verse 35 there of Deuteronomy 32. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. It is said that it is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached on the North American continent to this day. Whitfield preached. And tens of thousands listened to him. And souls were saved by the score listening to Whitfield preach. But they said that sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached that day not being the announced preacher and not coming to the meeting prepared to preach at all, but getting up to fill in for a man who had taken ill, 
as he preached, it says, there was widespread weeping in the congregation. People were fainting and falling down. People were crying out during the preaching. Convulsions were taking place in people's lives. Such was the impact it was having upon them as they listened to this man preach about sinners in the hands of an angry God. People smote their breast. Like the man in Scripture in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. God be merciful to me, a sinner. They were crying out for mercy. They were holding on to the pillars in the church lest they would fall into hell. As Jonathan Edwards preached on sinners in the hands of an angry God. Edwards didn't preach for dramatic effect. That, that was not his style. In fact, when people were troubled in the meeting, as he preached, he stopped preaching. And he waited until people gained their composure. He did not preach for dramatic effect. He did not capitalize on the fact that people were being troubled in the meeting and somehow use that to further what he wanted to accomplish in the meeting. He stopped preaching. And he waited until people composed themselves. And then he would start again. And then the same thing would happen again. People would be overcome as he preached. It says the Spirit of God came down and used the truth of eternal damnation to bend and break hard hearts. But Edwards was equally matched in preaching the work of redemption as he was in warning about the certainty of judgment. It is said that he flung the door of mercy wide open, and I'm quoting, he flung the door of mercy wide open and stands, that Christ stands in the door calling with a loud voice to poor sinners. And whatever vivid imagery he could use to describe the judgment of God, he could use just the same vivid imagery to preach redemption through Christ. Many were saved. Many were saved. And it has become such a well-known sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Just as we conclude tonight, I want to draw your attention to a few points out of this sermon. That little phrase there, their foot shall slide in due time. You can notice there that sin sets sinners on a slippery slope. That's the imagery that is being set before us there. Sin sets a sinner on a slippery slope. That's where sin takes an individual. Now, it does, sin does many things to an individual. It binds and enslaves them, brings them misery and trouble. But there's one thing that sin does to an individual. It sets them on the slippery slope to hell. They're on the road to hell. And with that vividness that Jonathan Edwards could preach with, he described what it was to be on that slippery slope. But that's where sin takes people tonight. They might think it takes, it brings them pleasure. And the pleasures of sin do last for a season. We know that. The Bible tells us that. But ultimately, sin sets a sinner on that slope. But not only that, it is only the long-suffering of God that delays the sinner's slide into hell. 
What is it that keeps them from sliding into hell? Because the context of that portion there in Deuteronomy 32 is the vengeance of God. At the start of that verse, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. There is the thought there of God dealing recompense towards sin and a day of judgment. So what is it that keeps the sinner from sliding into hell? Nothing more than the long-suffering of God. It's not their ingenuity and their cunning craftiness that keeps them out of hell. Oh, there's many who think that. They think they can stay one step ahead of God. How foolish. The only thing that keeps a sinner out of hell is God's long-suffering. And he is a long-suffering God. We can testify to that. Every individual who's saved can testify to that. God is long-suffering. He didn't deal with any of us as he dealt with the angels. And the angels were cast into hell immediately. No possibility of redemption whatsoever. God didn't do that to any one of us who are saved. He hasn't done that to mankind in casting them into hell. But sin sets them on that slippery slope and it's only the long-suffering of God keeps a sinner out of hell. And the sinner ought to be aware of that and realize that and be alarmed at that. Their lives are in the hand of God. And the point that is to be made out of that statement as well is that God's long-suffering will eventually come to an end. God's long-suffering doesn't last forever. It has its end. Oh, it runs long. Far longer than the long-suffering of you or I. But God's long-suffering comes to an end sooner or later. At some stage, at some time, in some circumstance, God's long-suffering is going to come to an end. And where will that take a sinner? Out into hell. Out into hell forever. You can go and read that sermon. I would encourage you to do it. Look it up on the internet. It's, it's there. I think it's in published form as well. Certainly in Edwards's um, volume of his, his writings. There's two large volumes. I have both of those. Uh, you'll, you'll read it there, but I'm sure you'll find it. You'd, and I know you can find it on the internet. I would encourage you to read it. And consider what he says. The Lord blessed. Souls were saved. Our, our time is running on. There's, there's other things that I could say about Edwards. In sketches of church history, we use this in school. Um, if you really want a, a very short summary of 1900 years of church history, look out for church, uh, sketches of church history. And there's a section on Jonathan Edwards in it that talks about North America. You see, the sad thing, there's something sad about the end of his ministry because he was put out of his church. He was put out of that church in Northampton. 1750, June 1750. They voted him out as the pastor of the church. Why? Because the stand that he took on some things, particularly relating to young people. There, there is a, a quote in sketches of church history that describes some of the general state of young people in the area. 
1734, this is a number of years beforehand, even before those awakenings. But as the, the second moving of God declined, stopped and declined, and the, the old spirit crept in again, Edwards spoke up about certain things. And there were those in the church didn't like what he had to say, and they ended up putting him out. That's, you can read that quote yourself about what he says. It's, as I say, it's in sketches in church history. He ended his days as president of Princeton College, another very famous university today. But again, a place that was started in New Jersey. It was called the College of New Jersey initially. Again, started by congregational ministers for the training of men for the ministry, but then branched out into other academic areas as well. And today it's far departed from the Lord. But at his, at his death, he was the president of the college. His son-in-law had been the president, a man called Burr, and had died suddenly. And they pressed Jonathan Edwards to take on the role, and he, he said he was too old and was not suited for it. But such was the respect that they had for him that they persuaded him to take on the, the role of president of what was then called the College of New Jersey, as I say. Since then, it is now called Princeton University. He's actually buried in the grounds of Princeton. That's where he lies to this day. There is a sadness to the end that that happened to him. But he was a man who mightily knew the Lord. And it's well worth reading anything about him, particularly because of what took place in those awakenings and that sermon that he preached. But also he, he, was, he was careful to examine what was taking place. As I say, some of those uh, books and accounts that he, he wrote as he examined the work of revival and defended then what was taking place, because he saw it to be genuine. Oh, that the Lord would come and do a work, a similar work in our day. And that's really part of covering some of these anniversaries. It's to stir an interest in our heart, in your heart, that you would think a little of these. And if you pick up a book and read a little bit about it, well, that would be even better. But oh, that the Lord would give us a hunger Simply along these lines, Lord, what you've done in the past, come and do again. It's not some new thing we're looking for the Lord to do, something that's never happened before, that we've never seen. That's not what we're asking the Lord to do among his people today. We're simply asking the Lord, Lord, just do today what you've done in the past. Come by the mighty power of your Spirit upon the Word and break hard hearts. And may the Lord do it. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father... Bless these things that we have considered. We thank thee, thou art the God of revival, and thou art a God who's able to work, and thy word is able to break hard hearts. And Lord, we certainly desire that. There's those, O oh God, we often pray for and are known to us in our families, and they're not saved, and their hearts are hard. And oftentimes, Lord, we wonder what will it take ever to stop them. And we pray that thou would awaken them, awaken them that they're on the slippery slope. Alarm them, O oh God, that there's only a step between them and a lost eternity. And may they flee to Jesus Christ. So have mercy. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.